be the moderator tonight, so he's going to, uh, we've got about five questions we're going to try to cover tonight. Hopefully we'll be able to get through all of those. He's going to get us started. He's going to read the question, and then we'll have a, a particular staff member kind of lead off with each answer and kind of give a chance for others to jump in as well. Um, John Proctor had to run over to the children's building for a minute, so don't think he chickened out or anything, but uh, <laughs> he'll be back in a minute. All right, the first question we've got tonight that was submitted um, is with the Bible now available digitally, digitally, uh, it is incredibly easy to read Scripture in numerous translations. How do I make certain I choose a translation that is reliable? And I'm turning it over to Gary first. Gee, thanks. Um, you know, I looked up, there are over 100 English translations published right now. On uh, BibleGateway.com, which is one of the internet sites that have uh, Bible information, commentary, stuff, there are 60 different English translations. Um, how do you know which ones are reliable? It depends on uh, what you're looking for. Um, if you want to know which Bible version that you should read, uh, that you should purchase, it's whichever one you will actually read. Uh, that's, I, I think, the most reliable one out there is the one that you would actually read. Uh, mo all of the, the, really, I'd have to say all of the English translations that are pretty much on the, on the market today are in their own way reliable. Uh, but they are done with a different translation philosophy and for a different purpose. Um, some, you know, and some are done more as a devotional reading. Uh, they're a very much a thought-for-thought thought translation. Uh, they are easy to read. Um, things like the, the Living Bible, um, the Message, things like that. They're, they're very much put into contemporary English language. Uh, they're reliable for that purpose. It's not that they're unreliable. Uh, at the other end of this spectrum are those that are considered a, what they call a formal equivalence. Uh, they're basically a word-for-word -word translation. Uh, that's, you'd find the, really the King James Version is a word-for-word -word translation, basically. Uh, the New American Standard is that kind of a translation. It takes the Hebrew and the Greek, it tries to retain the word order where it makes sense in English. Um, the the uh, Christian Standard Bible is toward that end of the spectrum. That's what we use in our Sunday school literature. And the reason I say spectrum is because there is a, a whole spectrum from word-for-word -word translations down to really these, these free translations like the, uh, the Living Bible and, the, the, uh, and, and uh, the Message. And in the middle um, are things like the NIV. Um, I, the, the ESV, I think, is in between the middle and the word-for-word. -word. It, it's a good translation. Um, if just... For Bible study, what in fact, what, what I'm just sharing with you kind of how I approach it and what I do, um, I use a parallel Bible that I have in my office that has King James, NIV, the Living Bible, Revised Standard Version, and then my preferred translation is the New American Standard. 
And the reason I've got that range is because one thing, the English language changes. Uh, King James Version uh, to contemporary language, it, the, our words change. Um, there's some, you know, some verses in, in Exodus, just as an example, the King James Version, Exodus 29:41, says, And the other lamb thou shalt offer it even, and shalt do thereto according to the meat offering of the morning. New American Standard Bible says, The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and shall offer with it the same grain offering. You may think, well, which is it, a meat offering or a grain offering? Well, when the King James was written, the word meat just meant food, grain offering. The morning offering was, in fact, a food offering or a grain offering. So the more modern translations have made that kind of change. The, the, the task of the translators and those who, who put together these English Bibles is really to bridge the gap between the original language Hebrew or Greek, Aramaic, uh, and English. It also has to bridge a gap from one culture to another. Uh, things that make sense at that time don't, may not make sense now if it's done literally. It also has to bridge the gap from one time to another. So there's a lot that goes into those translations, but again, it, it really goes back to why are you reading? If you're reading it devotionally, find something that you can read easily. That, that it's in a syntax and in, in English language it's easy for you to read that you actually will spend time reading. If you're getting into really exegetical study, then you're probably going to want one that's more of a formal equivalence. If you really want to dig in, if you really want to get the most out of it, find three or four different translations, English translations, and compare them as you're reading them. Uh, because the translators do make different decisions on specific words and even how to, how to translate certain thoughts. Um, so yeah, it's not an easy answer. I will tell you there's one that I know is not reliable. How's that? The New World Translation. It is what you will be handed by Jehovah's Witnesses. It was done specifically with their heretical theology in mind. It is not a translation from the Greek and Hebrew. It is, they take that and they change it in order to fit their theology. Um, but most other English translations, you find one you'll actually read. That's, I think that's the, the best I can say. I know, you know, it's I, my preferred translation is the New American Standard Bible. I've learned to be able to read it devotionally as well as study, but that's because it was, this will age me, it was 1973 when I was given my first NASB Bible. It's the one that's on my desk, it's been recovered and all of that. Uh, that got me through college and seminary. Upon graduation at seminary, I was given another NASB, which is the one that I use today. So it's what I'm comfortable with. It's what I'm used to. It's the one I read most regularly. I also have a, an ESV, uh, King James, and then the parallel Bible that I do when I'm studying. I don't know. What do you guys use? <laughs> Since I just got here. Uh, well, I, I use two different Bibles. So the one that I read from the most, I use New American Standard. 
Um, that's the one I feel the most comfortable with. But as far as when it comes into children's ministry, there's a couple versions I like. I like the New Living Translation uh, for the kids. It's just a lot easier for them to read and to comprehend those verses uh, through that translation. But also with the new curriculum that we're using, we use the NIVR. It's just a, it's also similar to the um, NLT, which is just a lot easier for the kids uh, to read and understand in their common language. Back when I was in seminary, I had a professor. I was bouncing around between translations. I was reading out of the, the NIV, the New Living Translation, New American Standard, King, New King James, all those, just trying to find out what I liked. And I had a professor in seminary, uh, Ken Easley, who told us in our New Testament class, he said, you got to pick a translation and just stick with it. Memorize out of that, study out of that. And so uh, the Lord led me to the ESV translation. I like it because it is, a, it, is, it is very close to a word-for-word translation, but it maintains the poetry of Scripture and the feel of Scripture. Um, I like the way that it handles the Greek, uh, and the, especially the Greek verbs and the verb tenses there. Um, I do use the New Living Translation whenever I'm doing devotional reading. Uh, when I used to preach to youth, I used the New Living a lot because you could read long sections and it was a little easier to follow along with. Um, but both of those have been very helpful to me uh, throughout my time, not only for my spiritual walk, but also in my ministry. Well, me, I was um, always raised in a church that used NIV, so that was uh, the one I used in my seminary professor, one of those was one of the translators, so, and he was a brilliant man, so I trusted him, uh, so I used that one, and then, of course, I've used others when I've uh, taught youth and things like that, just like Jeff as well, and of course, I, now that I'm here, because I use what Jeff uses, because I want to be, um, be able to study what he's preaching, yeah, I want to be like Jeff, yeah, uh, yeah, no, I want to, I want to do, you know, make sure I'm with him, what he's saying, so, uh, so it, yeah, those are mine. With the King James and memorized out of the King James, everything was King James. And um, then I was liberated and found the ESV. <laughs> and <laughs> I thank God for the ESV. And I study out of that translation. I preach out of that translation. And when it comes to like personal quiet time, I go between the ESV and the Amplified. Um, and I would preach from the Amplified, but I just, I'm stuck on the ESV, so. Yeah, when Gary said 1973, I was thinking there's only three of us on the stage who were alive in 1973, and I was only a year old, so uh, you can guess that.
Praise. <laughs> I want to. I want just one more. I'll just take another minute. Uh, <laughs> when you're studying your Bibles, we are all often tempted when there's a verse that we have trouble with or something to immediately turn to our favorite commentary and get someone else's opinion as to what that means. I would advise you first turn to two or three other translations of the Bible. Read those. Try to figure it out yourself. And then, if you still wish, go to at least two commentaries. Uh, remember, a commentary is generally written by one person, and it is their point of view. Uh, it might be from their theological perspective. It might be from something else. But the Holy Spirit within you, confronted by the Word of God in two or three different translations, you usually can get the application that the Lord wants you to get out of it, just spending time with Him and with His Word. Uh, but commentaries are useful. All right, we're ready for question number two. I'm going to fire this at Jeff. Do miracles still happen today? The short answer would be yes. Um, but we're not going to give you a short answer. Um, let's, let's think about this for a second. Um, when we got this question, we debated this question, or not really debated, but discussed how we would look at this question in staff meeting the other day. Uh, when I think of a miracle, uh, when I think of the word miracle and what that means in Scripture, I, I define that as a moment when God intervenes in the way that the normal laws of science and nature operate, a, a moment in which God steps in and breaks the law of nature in order to do something miraculous. I think about the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea. That was a, a, a violation of the laws of nature. The Red Sea should not have parted by any way or form. A virgin does not give birth. That is a miracle, right? Uh, someone rising from the grave, Lazarus, who had been in the grave for three days, that's a miracle. Jesus in the grave, three days, that's a miracle. Jesus healing a man of, blind, by, of blindness by slapping mud on his eyes and telling him to go wash, that's a miracle, right? That's not the way you normally would do that. A woman who was sick for years, it says, and suffered at the hands of doctors and who simply grabbed on Jesus' clothes and was healed of her issue of blood, that, that's a miracle. So that's how, whenever I think about miracles, first of all, that's what I think of. A, a moment when something breaks the laws of nature and science, and there is no other way you can possibly explain that other than the fact that God did something miraculous. Now, when we look at Scripture, the reason why miracles were performed were to prove, the vast majority of them were to prove the truthfulness of the messenger. I think about Jesus. Why did Jesus perform miracles? To prove that He is the Son of God. It says in John chapter 10, verse 37, Jesus said, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. And so Jesus performed those miracles in order to validate His testimony. He did those things so that the people who were listening to him would know and would believe that, yes, this man truly is the Son of God. I think that's also why Jesus didn't go around and do a show. He didn't go around and say, I'm going to do a big miracle show today. Y'all come buy tickets to the forum and come down here, and we're going to have a healing party. That wasn't what he did. Um, he, the, it, it was always in passing. It was always in the moment, and it was simply in that moment in order to prove to the person that he was doing the miracle with and the people around that, yes, he was the Son of God. And he is still the Son of God. In the book of Acts, we see the same thing. When Peter and John, for instance, in Acts chapter 3, healed the lame beggar, it was, in a sense, to prove that they were the messengers of the truth. The miracle validated the testimony. 
Now, the question that I hear often in relation to miracles is why do we not see that today? When we read the Bible, we read all these things of healings and, and, and people coming back from the dead and all this kind of stuff, walking on water, those kind of things, and we think, why is that not happen today? Um, how come we don't see those kind of miracles? Well, I think about 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8, that says, As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And what I interpret that verse as saying is that there were certain sign gifts that were given to the early church and that Jesus, Jesus did that, that validated the message, that that was, the, that was what was done. Those gifts were there during the partial, in a sense. But when the fullness came, when the perfection came of the Word of God, when the Word of God was finished, there was no need for those miracles any longer. Because in, in a sense, the Lord looked and said, hey, here's all you need to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. You have the Word of God. You don't need miracles anymore. Here's all you need. Now, does God stu still do miracles today? Yes, I believe He does. He's God. He can do what He, what he pleases. He can and He does. We hear stories about things. We uh, um, especially, I, I think we especially hear stories in faraway lands of things that take place, lands where maybe the gospel has not gone as far into those countries. We still see those miracles today. But maybe, I, I think when we think about why we don't see them as often today as maybe we did in Scripture, it might be simply that the Lord is saying to us, you have all I, you need to know that I am real. And so it's not that God is absent. It's that God has already given us the fullness of His testimony. And the miracles aren't necessary anymore in order to prove God's existence, to prove the, the Lordship of Christ. He says, it's right here. Here it is. Anybody else got something you want to add to that? I just think of a couple of things. This is, this is just two personal stories. I agree with Jeff. Um, here's my just little personal one that, uh, this is kind of a funny way, but, and, and some it's not, but uh, when Ronnie and I were adopting Leanne, um, it's a very big financial expense. Um, and we were down to needing $7,000 left to complete the adoption. And this may not be a miracle in description the way uh, Jeff described it, but we got it from the IRS. I won't go into the details about it, <laughs> but we got $7,000 from the government. And for me, that is kind of a miracle against the laws of... Uh, <laughs> so, but also in our church in uh, Manchester, we were in a, a young boy was born with uh, leukemia, and his parents were told to take him home, keep him comfortable. Uh, he wouldn't live three months and they told him what signs to watch for when the baby was going to die. And he went back to the doctor, and it wasn't there. And that kid is 16 years old today. Um, so it, it was com he was complete healing. That story was on the 700 Club. Um, so that was a, a miracle that I personally saw um, in my life. Yeah, I, I think I, I just want to reiterate really one thing that Jeff said. It's not that miracles have ceased, but the purpose and the reason for them has changed. Uh, they no longer are, quote, sign gifts of miracles to authenticate an apostle or to authenticate Christ as the Son of God. But God does still intervene in this natural world. He, he answers our prayers. Uh, he, he reaches into the, the, the world in which we live and makes his presence known. 
That alone to me is a, is a miracle. It is the supernatural intervening in this world. Uh, each time I think someone comes to that point of faith where they accept Christ and are made new, <laughs> that's a miracle. Uh, that, is, that is the supernatural intervening in the natural world. Uh, so I, I don't want anyone to, to give up hope that God is going to do a miracle in your family, in your life, or wherever. He still does miracles. But there are no miracle workers here anymore. Uh, there are no miracle workers that are going to hold, you know, in the, in the stadiums, healing people. Um, but there is a miracle working God. But He works in His way, in His time, for His glory. And I was going to add real quickly. Uh, in John chapter um, 15, verse 16, it says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that that fruit would remain. And whatever you ask in my name, I'll give it to you. All right, so that's talking about, like Jeff said, out on these foreign fields. So I, I just have to share this little story. Uh, it happened on a mission trip to Honduras, and we were up on a mountain where the gospel had not, as the people said, the gospel's never gone up on that mountain. So we took the Jesus film up there, and we had a very expensive projector that Ed Nick said, don't let anything happen to it. So he said, okay. And we were outside, showing it on the side of the school, and, and uh, we saw a tremendous storm heading our way. Black clouds just moving right at the mountain. And uh, the little teacher who had asked us to come up there was standing next to me, and she said, oh, no, what do we do? And I asked, just asked, well, why don't we pray? And we asked God to send it away and said, amen. And it went away. Uh, God intervening in that to save me from getting beat up by Ed Nix. <laughs> Plus, to show that movie, and only one person received Jesus on that mountain, but he was the first. And I pray there were many more. All right, we'll move on to the next question, and John, this will come back to you. Um, it's explain Ephesians 4, verses 9 through 10. Uh, therefore, it says... We, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended, the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. That's a good question. It really is. And, and it was prompted by the Sunday school lessons that we were having uh, because this was a couple of weeks ago that we studied this passage. And I had always had in my mind that he was talking about Jesus ascended to hell because he went into the lower parts of the earth. And it kind of coincides with the verse that's found in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19, where it talks about Jesus had gone uh, to, uh, to preach to the prisoners in, where was it? The, the spirits in prison is what it said. And so you would think, okay, well, this is all coming around. And that was during the days of Noah, those who had been disobedient in the days of Noah. So Jesus went and talked to them. So they kind of bring that around and think, well, this is what this is talking about. However, in this study, as uh, people who were in the Sunday school classes found out, it's actually talking about, and 
I guess I better put on my glasses so I can read it better. And back when I was reading King James, I didn't need these glasses. Isn't that something? <laughs> these are my new King James glasses right here. Now, this is the, 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 the truth about studying Scripture, as Gary was talking about here. Uh, when you're reading any passage, you have to just not lift it out of context and say, well, all right, well, this is what these verses are saying, so what do they mean? You go back to the entire passage and read it all. And then you need to know some history. Because this is uh, actually talking about history. So, uh, because he was quoting in this from uh, uh, Psalm 68, uh, which is uh, a psalm that talks about a victorious king who had gone and, and had captured and taken prisoner. And it was uh, the captives. And he brought back uh, presents and gifts to give to the people. And uh, this passage in chapter 4 talks about God giving gifts to the church because it was to bring about unity. The, the book of Ephesians is talking about the unity of the church. It even talks about us coming together as the bride of Christ. And boy, that's, you really have to be unified for that. And that's what we look forward to because that day is coming and we will be there in heaven as Christ's bride. And that's something you need to be looking forward to because it's, it's coming. But now watch what it says here. Um, I'll start back with the verse 8. Therefore, so when it says therefore, you go back and look and why does he say therefore? You know that. Uh, and that's a conjunction and it brings it to, he says, uh, I'll start with verse 4. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And now that's good news for you because we know we have uh, oneness in Christ. Now watch. But to each of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So now you see in verse 7, he's talking about giving out gifts. And then uh, it's not like he said, oh, by the way, you know, Jesus went down into the depths of hell and preached to. No, he's, he's not doing that. He's telling this uh, from history, painting a picture. And these people would have known about this because Roman soldiers, when they had a victory, they would bring captives with them. And they would share uh, with those who had, had gone on the, the adventure with them, the battle with them, they would share the booty with them. They would get different uh, prizes from that. And so in that uh, verse there, in verse 9, it says, uh, verse 8 goes on, said, therefore he says, and thought about giving gifts, uh, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captiv captivity captive. All right. Um, that's, when, that's talking about Jesus' ascension because he did rise, at, at, uh, as we read in um, Acts chapter 1. Uh, then watch this. It goes on to say, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. Now that's talking about, I do believe personally that this is talking about taking Satan and having dominion over him. And uh, God... Uh, God is over Satan. We all know that. And he has got him uh, cowed down, but uh, Satan still runs amok in the world. And he gave gifts to men. All right. Uh, that's talking about the gifts he gave to the church. Uh, all right. Now, then it says, now this he ascended. What does it mean? All right. So we get an explanation. But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. 
now. Uh, that would sound like he's going into the earth. Now, let me do this for you. I, I took and translated the Greek word for word so you see how it was. <laughs> of course, I was using the Blue Letter Bible in their Greek dictionary to do this. Uh, when it says, uh, therefore he, uh, let's see, where is it? But he is, but ascended, who he which that also descended first. Now he's talking about Jesus. He descended first. He came from glory, his, uh, his incarnation, into. Now the word for into that uh, many Bibles are using is the, the Greek word E-I-S, which is pronounced ice. It can, be, it can mean either into, unto, to, towards, for, among. So you say, uh, which is it? And what, what happens is the translator will say, which fits best in the context of this scripture? Many of them uh, have chosen into, which kind of gives you the idea of being into the lower parts, or to, and... Uh, I like two better because Jesus ascend, descended from heaven to this earth, which is lower than heaven for sure. And uh, let's see, he, he who, I'm back to verse 10. He who descended is also the one who ascended, which is his ascension. The descended is his incarnation. And let's see, who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now watch, just to prove that it's talking about the gifts. And he himself, I like the way he said that, double impact. He himself gave some, not everyone, but some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. And the reason for these gifts that he's talking about, for the equipping of saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So that's what that is talking about. It's talking about Jesus's uh, descending in his incarnation and then talking about his ascension back to heaven where he reigns superior, superb. Anybody else got anything to add to that? Looks like you handled it a lot. You, you, you did well. Yeah, I think you got that one down. I'm going with you, John, on that one. All right, but I think we've got time for one more, okay? And uh, we're going back to Jeff, okay, on this one. Is there a difference between Hades and hell? Is there a difference between paradise and heaven? If so, please explain. Okay. Um, when we think about hell, heaven, paradise, Hades, those terms in Scripture, um, I think we can think of it in a, in a timeline perspective in a sense. Um, and then, for instance, in the, in, the New, in the Old Testament, you see the word Sheol pop up, S-H-E-O-L, and it's usually a term that's referred to the place of the grave, the place of the dead, um, you know, and then when we come to the New Testament, you'll, you'll see the word Hades pop up. Uh, for instance, in, in Luke chapter 16, the story of the rich man Lazarus, it talks about the, that the rich man went down to Hades. It refers to Hades there as a place of torment, what we would consider hell. Um, there's other places where, uh, for instance, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, it says, I, and I tell you, Jesus said, um, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, or Hades is the Greek word there, uh, shall not prevail against it. Um, and so there are sometimes whenever, um, whenever Hades refers to specifically a place of torment, there are other places 
in Scripture where it's kind of unclear. The word Hades comes up, but we don't really know exactly what it's being used for. Acts chapter 2, verse 31 says that he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he, the Christ, was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh seek corruption. And so some people look at that and say, well, that's just referring to the place of the dead. Um, but also, Revelation 20 talks about Hades and how Hades is going to be death and Hades. Revelation 20, 14, it says death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And, and so I think the best way to explain the difference between Hades and hell, what we think of as hell, that eternal place of punishment, um, is kind of like this. Uh, when a lost person dies, um, if you can think about it in Memphis terms, they go to 201 Poplar. All right, picture that in your mind. A person commits a crime, commits a felony, uh, they are guilty, you know it, they, they you may even confess it. Where do they go first? They go to 201 Poplar. They're going to sit in a jail cell and await what to happen. A trial, a trial and a sentencing. And then once they are convicted of that crime, officially convicted, the judge is going to sentence them guilty and he's going to uh, uh, assign them a penalty for that crime. They're going to receive their judgment. And then where are they going to go? To the federal penitentiary where they're going to serve their time. And we can think about it like that, that when a lost person dies, they are going to go to the spiritual equivalent of 201 Poplar. That's a pretty bad place, ain't it? Um, and where they are going to remain there, guilty as charged. We know they're guilty, but they're, serf- they're suffering, they're serving part of their punishment, but there is going to come a day where they're going to stand in front of the judge. To, they're going to be moved from 201 Poplar to the great white throne judgment. And at the great white throne judgment, those lost are going to be judged for what they are guilty of, for, for their acts, so they're going to be shown to be guilty. And what happens then? They're going to be cast into the lake of fire into that eternal place of hell. And so we can think of it in that timeline, that a lost person who dies goes immediately into, into punishment, where they're going to then await their trial at the great white throne, and they're going to be thrown into eternal punishment then. And I think we can follow the same analogy when it comes to the paradise heaven comparison. Uh, when, a, when a saved person dies, uh, Luke 23, 43, Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Uh, when a saved person dies today, their soul goes into heaven, to paradise, whatever term we want to use for that. They are in the presence of the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And they will remain there until the return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead when their soul and their body will be reunited. And then there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And then they will live for eternity in a heaven on earth. So as there is a heaven now that is a spiritual realm, and there is a heaven that is to come after the return of Christ, which is a physical realm. And so I, we, we can get confused on the terms, paradise, heaven, Hades, hell. But really, I think the easiest way to think of it in earthly terms is timeline of where is a lost person, a saved person who has died today, and where will they be for eternity? Both paradise and heaven are heaven. They're in God's presence, in God's, God's control, God's, God's realm receiving God's, you know, gift and, and God's um, reward. And those who are lost are today in Hades, hell, whichever one you want to call it. It's translated as both in the New Testament. It is a place of punishment. But at the, at the return of Christ, at the judgment, there is going to be then a definite eternal punishment and an eternal reward. I think that's about the simplest way. I don't know if anybody else has got another way you would like to explain that throughout there. But anyone else? There we go. And, and that is the important thing because both are eternal, um, that there is no second chance. There is no um, going to 
the federal penitentiary and earning parole when we think about spiritual matters. There is no parole. There is no early release. There is no, everything is a life sentence, an eternal life sentence. So, um, I think that's about all the time we're going to have tonight. The next question we were going to get to might take us about 30 minutes, so we're not going to jump into that one tonight. We're going to save that one for next week. Uh, but let me pray for us, and uh, thank you for coming tonight. I hope it's been beneficial to you. And like I said, if you have questions you'd like to submit for next week, uh, be sure to just write them on a card, write them on a piece of paper, anything, give them to us, drop it in the offering plate tonight, and, uh, and we will take a look at those and try to work them into the schedule over the next several weeks. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it gives us answers. And I thank you for giving us minds that we can consider questions and we can work our way through those things and come up with sound answers to real questions that we have. And so, Father, I pray that we would constantly be asking questions. We would constantly be digging, wanting to know more about our faith, wanting to know more about how to apply our faith to our everyday lives. Give us all that guidance and wisdom that we need. Help us to grow closer to you every single day. And I pray as we go from this place that we would be the church and that we would seek to provide the answer for eternal life to those we come in contact with, and we would find ways to tell people about Jesus this week. And it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.